Good morning, church and guests, and welcome from downtown Denver. We will continue today in our series on counterculture. How do we, as those who are living in apprenticeship to Jesus Christ, how do we as a church family embody a different kind of culture that isn't different just for the sake of being different, but that is uniquely hopeful, that is uniquely just and merciful in the ways that we follow Jesus and live out our faith practically. If you had to summarize the ministry of Jesus in just one sentence, I wonder what you would say. Now, I realize this calls for pretty significant oversimplification. It calls for painting with pretty broad strokes to say the ministry of Jesus was basically just this and this in a sentence. But at the same time, I think we often tend to overcomplicate what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. I mean, we, we turn it into 800 different little nitpicky things, and I think sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. We lose sight of just really how simple following Jesus is at the end of the day, and we easily can turn it into a bunch of things, maybe that have something to do with it, and maybe that don't. Um, so again, if you were to take something really complex, the ministry of Jesus, and just boil it all down to just a couple simple key things, like this is what Jesus was about, what would you say? Now, the New Testament itself does this, and I invite you to Matthew chapter 4 this morning where we're going to start, and then I'm going to jump to a couple other texts that say similar things, but each one is going to build on the one before it. So Matthew chapter four, and as I read these few verses, I want you to see if you can pick up on what was the basic ministry pattern of Jesus, okay? So Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse 23, we read this. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And this is the word of the Lord. Okay, so you, you're beginning to pick up on a little pattern, right? A little something that the New Testament itself is saying, the ministry of Jesus just kind of crystallizes down to these couple key things. Now, keep that in mind, what you're thinking already, and let's just test that up against a couple other texts. So turn forward a few pages to Matthew chapter 9, and now he's going to be teaching his disciples, like, pray for these kinds of people to go and minister. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35 and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, from there, turn ahead to Luke chapter 9. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, turn ahead two books. Luke chapter 9, 
And let's read verses one and two and then verse six. Luke chapter nine, verse one, and Jesus called the 12, that is the 12 disciples, later the 12 apostles together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Okay, so you got it? Like a few different samples in this sample size of three different texts. What was the ministry of Jesus? And just as importantly, what did he pass on to his disciples, to his followers, saying this is kind of the irreducible minimum of ministry in my name and for the sake of my kingdom? And you hear it in all these texts. It's number one, proclaiming the gospel. Number two, it's healing the sick. Okay, so Jesus spends a massive amount of emphasis proclaiming good news, proclaiming forgiveness, salvation, hope, adoption. You know, we can use a bunch of different terms for it, but he's preaching good news about his coming kingdom and the fact that he is the kind of king who's going to bring justice and faithful covenant love and mercy and forgiveness to his people. But then he's also doing miracles, probably thousands of them or tens of thousands of them. When you read these different snippets in the gospels and it's like, and Jesus was just healing everyone who is brought to him with any kind of sickness. And that bring me, brings me to another question. Why did Jesus do the miracles? Okay, and, and what I mean is, why didn't he just focus on the preaching part, the, the proclamation part, the declaration of good news? Okay. So, I mean, if this, if this body, if this world is passing away and really the only thing that matters is our eternal relationship to the Father, then why didn't Jesus focus solely on that one thing and say, here's the gospel, here's the whole thing, friends, neighbors, this is it. Believe this. Why did he also spend so much time doing so many miracles? And, and scripture's own answer is in part the fact that sometimes these miracles were called signs or wonders. The idea of a wonder is something that causes awe and amazement. Someone's like, wow, like this guy is really powerful. This guy has a tremendous connection to the Father and this phenomenal divine power, right? Um, the idea of a sign is, well, it, it signifies something. And what did the miracles signify? Well, beginning with Jesus' first miracle where he's at a wedding and he's turning water into wine so that the hosts of this party are not embarrassed, they're humiliated in that culture because they've run out of one of the key elements of this feast. And this miracle ends and John points to this in John 2.11. He says, this first sign that Jesus did was to manifest his glory. In other words, for people to just be like, wow, like we see something of this rainbow-like display of your power, your goodness, your, your justice, your mercy, your love, your, your compassion, okay? So he's displaying that. Going to the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, we read this in verses 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you, so you hear that. He, he literally says, 
I have recorded these specific signs, these specific miracles, so that, here's the purpose, so that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God's King appointed to rule for all time, okay? So we could say that the supernatural power, the authority, the glory that's conveyed in all of these healing miracles is causing people to say, wow, but it's also authenticating both his identity, this is the Son of God, and his message. Like we can trust what this man says. If he promises this good news, even if it sounds too good to be true, we have seen with our own eyes, we've heard with our own ears, we've experienced in the flesh the power and the authority that this Jesus has. So we trust that his message is true. Okay, you see that. So it's, it's kind of like when Jesus encounters, remember the lame man that they actually, Jesus is teaching in his house that's just packed full of people. And so these friends go up on the roof of the house and they literally like tear off the roof over top of where Jesus is and they lower this man down on his bed pallet in front of Jesus. And Jesus has this conversation with him in front of these religious leaders who are just incensed by what's going on. And Jesus says, okay, Son, your, your sins are forgiven you. And they're, they're outright. Oh, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus says this. Okay, so which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier to say? Well, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to either verify or falsify that claim. Does Jesus really have the authority to do that? Well, we don't know because that's the forgiveness of sins is not something you see. But if I speak to this man and I say, rise, take up your bed and walk, and everyone knows this man from the village, that he's lame. He cannot walk. And he gets up and walks. You have now verified, you have authenticated the authority and the unique identity of Jesus. Okay? So this is what Jesus is doing, at least in part with his miracles. He's authenticating his personality, his identity, and he's authenticating his message, okay? He is Savior, he is Lord, he is King, he has come to rescue and forgive and restore, okay? So he's proving that. But let's take this question one step further. I say, why did he do miracles? Now you know, if you didn't know. But why did he do these kinds of miracles? You ever think about that? Like, if you're filled with divine power to essentially do anything, then why does Jesus not do like Superman returns, you know, and like rescue the burning jetliner before it crashes into Yankee Stadium and everyone's like, whoa, he's amazing, he's back, he's all powerful. Why did Jesus never do just nonsensical or sensational stuff just for the sake of wowing people? You ever notice that in the miracles? He, he doesn't do magic tricks. He's not like, oh, hey, check this out. I can make the temple disappear. Bring, and now I can make it reappear. But you know, he, he doesn't ever do stuff like that. He also never uses that authority, that power to harm people. He always uses that authority and that power to heal. And this is more than just interesting to me. This is incredible that when Jesus wanted to prove to us, I'm really the Messiah. 
I am the Lord and Savior of the earth, and there is no one like me. He used his authority and power. Get this. He used his authority and power to be kind, to be compassionate to broken people, and to just so often meet real-world, street-level, practical needs, pains that they were struggling with. So besides, so, so what besides raw power demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God? What besides raw power demonstrates the trustworthiness of his gospel? What besides raw power demonstrates the nature of his kingdom? Kindness. And, and Jesus is like, if you want to know what kind of king I am, here it is. I will use my power and my authority to look at people who are like sheep without a shepherd, wandering and hopeless and helpless, and I will be kind and gracious to them. Okay, so here's what I want you to notice in the trajectory of the three sets of verses that I just read. First of all, Jesus says, my entire ministry boils down to these two things, proclaim the gospel and promote the common good. Then when I'm telling my followers to pray for more people to carry out my ministry, it's the same thing, proclaim the gospel and promote the common good. Then when I actually call them alongside me and I send them out with my authority in my name to do their own ministry, it's the same two things, proclaim the gospel and promote the common good. And by the way, you know that the disciples got this because the earliest Christian history is a book called Acts. And in Acts chapter two, what do they do? They proclaim the gospel. In Acts chapter three, what do they do? They heal the sick, okay? They got it, that this is what the life and ministry of Jesus is about. Therefore, if we are going to build a countercultural kingdom culture, this is what it's going to be about. This is what it's gonna look like, okay? Now, we have a tendency today to get hung up on the specifics, and I think it's really just a way of excusing ourselves. Like, I've, I've heard plenty of people say, well, you know, preach the gospel. I mean, I wasn't called to preach in the way that you were called to preach. And many would say, well, I, you know, I don't have the gift of healing like those people back then. And so I would say, okay, I, like, I get that. So if, if, if you're hung up on the word preach, then live the gospel, share the gospel, Proclaim the gospel, illustrate the gospel, reflect the gospel, because we're all called to do that. And if, you, if we can't literally heal someone because we don't have that supernatural gift from the Spirit, then let's figure out a thousand other ways to take the compassion of Jesus. And instead of letting it just be an abstract concept, ooh, compassion, we find a thousand different ways to embody that and to flesh that out in the real world on the daily level where people live. Okay, so this morning we're talking about, the message title is Seeking Cultures Shalom. And I'm getting that from one of my favorite texts in Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse seven, where Jeremiah the prophet is talking to the exiles, the people of God who have been shipped into exile in Babylon, and he's speaking to them, and some other prophets are saying, hey, like, don't worry, God's gonna rescue you, he's gonna bring you right back, so just, just be chill, hang out for a little bit, and you'll be right back. And Jeremiah says, nope, those, that, that is not the word from the Lord. The word from the Lord is this, Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. 
for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I know that he's talking to the old covenant people of God. He's not talking to the church per se. Okay, I get that. But when we come to a book like 1 Peter, and 1 Peter's telling us the same thing, you, church, are living in exile. This is not your final home, the United States or wherever you happen to live listening to this. This is not your final and ultimate citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. So in a sense, you're in exile here. So seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you on a temporary basis. And that word welfare is the word shalom. Like one of the most incredible Hebrew words that we don't have a direct English, you know, comparable word because shalom is like peace, yes, but it's it's prosperity, it's it's plenty, it is overflowing abundance of wholeness and healthiness and everything good. And what we tend to do, and I know I'm painting with broad strokes, but conservatives tend to look at culture and say, look, if you want the peace of Christ to be evident in culture, then just preach the gospel. You know, and, and liberal Christians tend to say, if you want the peace of Christ to reign in culture, then, then just do social justice. And Jesus himself comes along and says, if you want the shalom of me, of Jesus, of God, to be shared with culture, then share the gospel and seek the common good. Not either or, but both and. So I, I know this is shaping up to look like a two-point sermon real quick, and for most of the week it was, but I want to give you one point before I come back to these two points, because I, I realized the more I thought about it, that bringing peace to others doesn't start with your words or your actions. It actually starts with the kind of person that you are. Okay. You ever been around a high-strung, like stressed-out, anxious person who's just obsessed with frenetic activity? Gotta do this, gotta do this, gotta do this, uh, uh, you know, and... and, and Probably you have. How does that make you feel? Again, like, man, it, it, I'm just so at peace being around you because it's like you stuck the anxiety out of me, you know, and you take it on yourself. No, you know that if you're around that kind of person, it makes you start to tense up. Like you're starting to feel anxious. You're walking on eggshells, okay? And, and it doesn't matter that that person is maybe talking about Jesus and maybe even a nice person. If they're still this, like just high strung, ah, uh, you're still going to feel that stress. So my very first point is, I think we, if we want to seek culture's shalom as an active, deliberate choice of being countercultural, we need to start by practicing non-anxious presence. That's your point one. Practice non-anxious presence. Now, I'm not going to re-preach a bunch of recent sermons for you, but when COVID first hit, I talked to you a lot about anxiety and fear and stress and that simmering frustration, right? And we said there, going through the life of Jesus, we see that, yes, we're in the midst of a storm. We can be surrounded by storms. We can be inundated by storms that are way more powerful than we are. But if we know that the Savior is with us, we can be at rest. We can experience shalom in the midst of the storm. And I know that we like to be in control and it's scary and it's anxiety producing when we are not in control. But what if we believe and trust and hope in the God who is always in control, even and especially when we are not? Okay, so I've noticed more and more since I began thinking about this that, that when a, gro a group of people 
are beginning to experience this kind of anxiety and turmoil and trials and frustration, they instinctively look to the non-anxious presence, right? And the disciples did this with Jesus over and over again. Master, do you not care? But what are they doing? They're saying, why aren't you anxious like the rest of us? Why aren't you all worked up like the rest of us? And I'm not just giving this to you this morning as one more thing to do. I'm not saying this needs to be your personality type or your Enneagram. Like, oh, I just naturally fall into being a non-anxious person. Some of you would say, I instinctively naturally fall into the opposite. I am instinctively like a control freak and I get anxious very easily. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not trying to give you one more thing to do. I'm asking you to abide in Christ. If Christ is the epitome of a non-anxious presence and you abide in him, you say, Lord, I confess that sometimes I'm so anxious, I'm fearful, I'm frustrated, I'm just stressed out, I'm, I am frenetic, I confess that, but I believe you, I trust you, I hope in you, I surrender to you. And if that is a pattern of faith that's being worked out in your life, then before you know it, you will find other people looking at you, gravitating toward you in the midst of conflict and stress because you are the non-anxious presence in the room. Okay, so be a, be a non-anxious presence. Practice non-anxious presence. Number two, now we're reviewing. Proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And I know I say this every week. Every week, the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the fact that Jesus sets us free from all the idols and all the guilt and all the shame and all the death and all of that. Yeah, but let me just stop real quick and say, if you were to take an audit of your past week only, how did you share the gospel? I mean, be specific. When did you share the gospel? What, what means did you use to share the gospel? What words did you use? Who were you sharing the gospel with? I had someone tell me this week, and it was, it was thrilling to my heart. She said, I talked to someone just how you've been teaching us the last few weeks to talk to them. So I saw someone in our city that was doing something really amazing, okay? So I went, and I scheduled, and I met with them, and I toured their facility. And I thought, wow, this is really incredible what you are doing like in our city to lift up this oppressed group of people and to do something else positive in the meantime. That is so like, and boom, immediately connected it to the gospel in a not weird way. Okay, and I'm so proud of different ones of you who are taking this on and saying, I agree, proclaiming the good news of Jesus is everything. It's not just my pastor's job or an evangelist's job. Jesus calls all of us, if you are in apprenticeship to me, if you are following in my way, if you want to be like me and deny yourself and take up your cross and actually follow me, then that is a life of gospel proclamation in word and in deed. Because friends, the message is not that we are nice people. We have missed it if all people get is, wow, Christians are such nice people. And the message is also not that those other people are really nice people. The message is we need Jesus. And our friends and our neighbors will never experience holistic peace, shalom, unless they first and foremost have peace with God 
through Jesus Christ. So this can sound as simple as just saying to a friend, like, I see this thing going on. You don't have to fight God. You don't have to resist God. You don't have to ignore God. You don't have to cower in fear of God. You don't have to be angry at God. You don't have to be anxious around God. Because Jesus came, the Son of God came, and he lived for you, and he died for you, and he rose from the dead, and he forgives your sins to give you a right relationship with the Father. Okay, so your story can look just like the story of the prodigal son over here in Luke 15, where maybe you have gone your own way. Maybe there's been animosity or tension or fear. Like, oh, God just scares me. But your story can be like that where God has sought you to reconcile you to himself. This is such good news. And he's literally planning to throw a party over you the way he did with the prodigal son. So practice non-anxious presence. Number two, proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And number three, promote the common good. This is as simple as my outline gets. Promote the common good. And I just mean promote the common good for its own sake. This is not a bait and switch. Okay? We need to be very careful that we are not saying, I'll do nice stuff for you for like three months or six months or maybe a year to see if you come to church with me or to see if maybe you would accept Christ. And then, you know, if at that point in time you're not getting saved, then I'm going to cut you off. That, that we are not serving our neighbors and seeking the common good with all these strings attached. Oh, I'll do this if you make this other ultimate decision. Okay, listen to these familiar verses. Galatians 6, 9 and 10 says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I've, I've often heard that first verse about like, you know, do not get weary in doing well, you know, and, you know, it's like a harvest, you know, you got to wait for it. And there's tough seasons that you go through. So just wait and don't give up. Just keep doing those morally good things. And then I look at the next verse and I'm like, I'm not saying he's not talking about moral goodness in verse nine, but when I come to verse 10, he's clearly talking about doing good means seeking the benefit of my neighbors, so what if in verse 9, when he says, keep on doing good, he's not just saying, be a good person, be a nice person, be moral, be ethical. But what if he's actually saying, keep on practicing, promoting the common good. Keep on living for the benefit of other people. Keep investing in other people, for in due season you will reap if you do not faint. So hear me out. I want you to hear me very clearly. Our culture needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. No qualifications. That is the main thing. But that said, friends, if, if the only benefit that Christians offer our cities, our cultures, our neighbors, is something like this, believe this or I can't help you at all. Accept this, become one of us, and then I can help you, Okay. We can't live in such a way that demands that everyone in our culture suddenly become a follower of Jesus in order to benefit from the way that we're living, okay? So I, I hear it something like this, core message of every one of you that's listening to me, core message, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our salvation. 
action. And even if you don't, I'm going to go right on seeking your good anyway. And do you see that this is how Jesus lived? Okay, He didn't go up to a leper or a lame man or the blind or the deaf. He didn't go to the demon-possessed person and say, I'll heal you if and only if you first make a decision to come follow me. Do you know, over and over again, the Gospels actually show us the opposite. Now, there are, there are times where he did something like that, okay? You will find that. But over and over in the Gospels, if we fill in some of the gaps and just read about these times where massive crowds came to him and he just healed all of them, then you have to understand he's healing a lot of people who never chose to believe in him, who never followed him, oftentimes who never even expressed gratitude. And yet he sought and promoted their good. Why? Why? Because that's just what love does. See, when you love your neighbor as you love yourself, we instinctively seek our own benefit, right? We instinctively invest in self. We instinctively try to avoid harm to me, to us, to, to our group. But Jesus taught us to love others the way that we first loved ourselves, right? So let me, let me put these three points in a little bit different terminology for you just to say it a different way. It's like this. The first of the points about being a non-anxious presence is like the great call. The great call of Jesus is like, receive my peace, right? You can be a new kind of person that even though anxious stuff is happening all around you, trials are happening, all storms are happening all around, disease, viruses, job loss is happening all around you. He says, my great call and the reason I came is to invite you into my peace that I give you. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you followers. So you have the great call. The second point is like the great commission, right? Go and share Jesus with others. That's the great commission. If you have one thing, one mission you do with your life, proclaim the gospel. But then thirdly, you have the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So just momentarily in closing, I want you to, again, just go back and audit just your last week. What did you do deliberately to work for the common good? Vocationally, okay? Or even as you were looking for a job. Recreationally, relationally with these different networks of friends and neighbors, coworkers that you have. How did you deliberately invest in them and say, I am doing this, and maybe even at cost to myself, to benefit you? Because that's the way of Jesus, that if we are going to be sowing shalom into our culture, if we are going to be seeking culture's shalom, their peace with God, their peace with one another, their peace with self, resolving their real identity in Christ, etc. Great commandment. How did you do this? How did you leverage your precious resources, time, money, talents, to lift people up? By the way, Christians, of, of which I'm a part, obviously, um, we, we have a hypocrisy here, okay? And I'm, I'm going to say this in closing. Because we are really good about writing books and articles and hosting conferences pre-COVID about, you know, work for the common good. 
Strive for the common good. And, and then we've got people who turn right around. Um, maybe even be a, a, a popular speaker or an author of one of these great articles that you've read. And if, as like Marty and I have had to do, you, you deal with one of these person, persons on the side in real life, and they are literally stealing millions of dollars from you and refuse to sit down and talk with you, okay, how is that promoting the common good? Okay, so what I think scripture is calling us to, like, if I make a mistake, let myself be harmed by that mistake. Don't go and harm other people. I mean, that in and of itself is a unique way to just be countercultural, to say, you know what, that was my bad, and that's, that's really going to hurt my bottom line. But I'm speaking especially to those of you with power and influence. If you, if you run a school, if you run a business, if you own real estate, uh, if you have different positions like in a PTA or over a, a group of doctors or lawyers or whatever your thing is, use that authority, that power, the way that we see Jesus using his power and authority to authenticate the reality of the gospel. Which is not like, ooh, look at me, look at how I can aggregate this power around me and use it for myself and lift myself up as I push other people down, as I sweep my mistakes under the rug and make other people pay for them. But you say, I will use my authority that God has delegated to me to lift other people up, to show kindness. I, by God's grace, will be that non-anxious presence. I will proclaim the gospel, the hope, in word and deed, and I will promote the common good. So this is your one big idea. Seek the welfare. Seek the shalom. Seek the peace and prosperity of all your neighbors by being a non-anxious presence who proclaims the gospel and promotes the common good.